In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the special evening edition of the True Life Podcast. Sometimes I I feel so blessed to have so many things happen to me. And one amazing thing that's happened to me today is this incredible individual who is at the forefront of helping us thoroughly understand psychedelics, microdosing, reality, and the world around us. The one and only Aline Hyen. She's coming to us from Maastricht University. She's recently published some papers and she's been presenting them. And I got to say, one of the most epic things that when I was looking into you is the fact that you're researching these real world situations. In so many cases today, people are afraid to touch people that may have, that may mess up their study. Oh, this person's bipolar or this person has ADHD, you know. It seems to me that a lot of these particular people have been excluded from studies for a long time. You seem to be taking the bull by the horns and saying, listen, let's figure out what's going on here. So as I'm kind of mowing around here, Elena, is there, is there maybe a little bit of a background that I forgot to fill in right there? Maybe you could talk to people a little bit about who you are and what you got going on before we get into your study. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. My name is Lina. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm Dutch, so I'm from Maastricht, and I'm currently doing my PhD here as well. Um, I did my bachelor and my master's degree also here in Maastricht, and um, during my master's, I did a research master um, where you do a long-term internship as well, like nine months. I went abroad to uh, Imperial College, so where Alexandra uh, from yeah. Sunday night was currently working. Um, and then I, in 2020, my previous mentor of the master, Kim Kuipers, uh, she reached out to me and uh, to, to offer me like a PG, PG position here. And that is what I'm currently doing. So um, I'm in my fourth year now. So this is like the finishing up, writing up phase. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of different things. Um, my main project would be 
a uh, clinical trial, so a, a controlled study in ADHD uh, with microdosing. And I did that, but it was a bit more difficult mm. to, to get it started and to do everything and execute the study. So I did also some other things, um, one of which is the naturalistic study that I published. Um, yeah, and that is something you, you mentioned. So we, we include different kinds of people. And instead of a, a controlled study, you only, yeah, you exclude based, based on safety, you exclude many right. people with, with certain conditions or disorders. Um, and in a naturalistic study, you you can do that, but you, you don't necessarily have to do it because I think in the wild, people still do it anyway. And it's actually really interesting to get that full picture. And it says a lot. Um, yeah, it can help also future studies to see if it is safe in these types of indi individuals or not. Yeah, it, I agree 100%. It's so intriguing to me because it seems that we're seeing science take a turn towards the world of the citizen. We're seeing science sort of take this step into measuring variables that may have been immeasurable in the lab. And I think your work is part of that. Like, maybe you can, like, what is the, what is a naturalistic study? Maybe you can help me and my listeners kind of understand the difference there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an important question because I think many people do not know. Uh, <laughs> so you have a naturalistic study or design and a, an experimental study. And the difference, the main difference is, is that in the, in the experimental study, you manipulate certain things, you manipulate certain conditions. And in a naturalistic study, you don't. So it's more observational. So you observe what's going on anyway. Um, so in an, in an experimental study, you, for example, give people a, a certain substance or a placebo. That is what you're, you're manipulating. And in a naturalistic study, for example, what we've, did, did, um, what we've done with the ADHD study, we just uh, were looking for people who were about to microdose on their own initiative. So they would do it anyway, and then we would follow them over time. So that is the main difference. So in one, you don't manipulate anything, and in the other one, you, you do manipulate uh, certain aspects of it. To, to, and um, like some have uh, benefits, and the other has some, some disadvantages. But both are very important, in my opinion, because, for example, the experimental study where you sit people in a lab and you um, try to exclude all the other types of environmental factors that could have an influence to isolate one specific thing that you want to measure, which is not really real life life, right. right? But you want to, like that is science, you want to isolate one certain thing. And in a naturalistic study, you, you can measure what's really going on in real life, but how can you know for sure, sure that it's really that thing that you are interested in? Because there's so many other th things involved. So I think, in my opinion, that like a combination of both of them is very valuable. And uh, I, don't, I don't really think that... I mean, some people see naturalistic studies and, as like something... Like that's easily done or doesn't mean anything, but I don't really agree with that. But maybe I'm biased because I've done a lot of <laughs> naturalistic studies. But I, I think they're, they're, they're fun to do. They're really interesting. And of course, they're also cheap, easy to do. You collect a lot of people's responses. You, uh, like you mentioned, you don't really exclude any participants, whereas the experimental study or controlled, uh, placebo-controlled study even, 
is very expensive, very uh, time consuming. Um, so, but yeah, you can say more about the causal relationship between the experimental uh, condition or manipulation that you want to investigate. So I hope that was a bit clear. Yeah, it yeah. is. It might might be a lot, but it is it is an important thing to realize. Um, because, for example, um, my family here, when I say I do research, they don't really know much about research. And they see that I've done some, like, a small period of my PG was actually testing of participants. And now I'm not testing anything, but I'm also doing online studies. And they're wondering, like, what, what do you do now exactly? Like, they don't really get it. It's not just only testing participants in the lab to do research. It is a, it's a great question, and you answered it beautifully. It <laughs> I, I, I wholeheartedly been, I've been thinking about this idea of truths and knowledge being revealed to us. And an example that I think about is in a heightened state of awareness or on a nice sunny day, you can go out into your garden and you can see the way in which like the root structures are have all this mycelium in there and it's moving the nutrients around. Like you can see real truths revealed to you in a natural setting. And sometimes it seems to me that the laboratory setting, while very important at times, it, it fundamentally changes the behavior of everything. I think of that rat study where they have the two rat, the rats that would just press the bar for cocaine, but then they realize, well, maybe this rat is in a setting that's a horrible place for them. And they did another study where they had all these cool things for the rat to do and it didn't press the bar for cocaine. So the naturalistic study to me is something that I don't think gets taken seriously enough. I think there should be more of that because you're really observing things the way they are. And I also love the idea that you're allowing people who were already taking this substance to take it in a way and then report their findings. It's What, what are some of the drawbacks, though? There's got to be some drawbacks to it. Yeah, of course, you, for example, you mainly reach participants who um, really want to participate in such studies, but that's kind of the same with experimental studies as well. Mm -hmm. you, you attract a certain type of person. Um, but, for example, big, a big limitation is that a lot of people drop out of naturalistic studies. So they participate in, in, in the first survey, but the, the following two surveys, they just stop participating. So, for example, in the a study we published, we started off with a sample of 250 people, but we dropped to 65. Mm. And then you don't have any information of why did they, those people stop. Was it because they just don't, don't want to participate anymore? Or is it something in the microdosing that was negatively for them? And then they thought, I'm, I'm out, I'm stopping. But that, so that can create a certain positive bias towards microdosing in, in the case of our study, right? So um, all these people that stopped, maybe they had like negative experiences, which we then now don't know anything about because they stopped participating. Do you get what I mean? So that is an important negative, uh, negative effect. And in an experimental study, um, people don't need to say what's why they stopped, but you kind of then have more uh, insight in, in what's really going on. You oftentimes observe then a negative reaction or, you know, okay, so just some personal situation or if someone doesn't want to continue anyway just out of i don't know no time or yeah so there's this yeah you don't know much about the reason of stopping 
um, also a big effect of um, like you don't really have a control group, but you, you can create a control group, but it's more difficult. So, for example, with the, the self-blinding microdosing study, that is a very clever way they made uh, participants blind themselves. So you have kind of a control group where you can compare the microdosing effects to a placebo um, group. But it's difficult to find a um, yeah, proper control group for a naturalistic study. Um, so I think that is the main... Um, what is also important in, in the case of microdosing, you attract people who will be microdosing on their own initiative. So they are very positive about microdosing probably. And that um, positive attitude can already create a certain positive effect, like a placebo effect or expectations effect. Uh, this is also something you cannot eliminate from your results. So you, you can find a very positive result, but you cannot know for sure it was if it was true to microdosing or if it was just driven by placebo or expectancy. Yeah, there's I, I can see the confirmation bias in there, you know. But but then I can see confirmation bias in everything from like neurofeedback to like, you know, the placebo. It blows my mind sometimes to think about the level of abstraction we find ourselves in. You know, on some level, why do we need to thoroughly understand the mechanism of action? Like we know it works. Like we see these people getting better. And, and might the, the, the hopeful and beautiful tears of joy in the family members of the, of the wife whose husband's no longer an asshole, might that be enough? You know, might that be something measurable? Like, <laughs> I know it's kind of out there, but why do we need to know the mechanism of action? I think for for people or like patients, it doesn't really matter. Of course, it doesn't matter right. at all. If it works, it works, and that's good. But like as a, I think for for science, you you do want to know what's going on, and if it if if it would be just purely driven by only placebo then it's really important to know if that is the case, right? Because why would then all these people, yeah, I mean, if it works, it works, but then, I don't know, it, 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 it doesn't, you have to figure out a bit more about why does sure. it work. You want to understand it better, I think. And especially if you want to legalize it or, or um, make some therapy out of it, you want to understand what's really going on, I think. And But from, yeah, like you said, from a patient's perspective, it doesn't really matter at all. And um, I think that's also very important to realize. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if, because now there's such a focus in psychedelic research on this aspect, right? If it's placebo or not, or especially in microdosing. Um, and, but I think, I'm not sure if there is so much focus on it in other types of treatments like uh, SSRIs or, or stimulant medication, don't know then there is just a placebo group and if it performs better than placebo then cool there is your result but here we need to disentangle it even further with the microdosing and yeah can be can be tricky but it's a it's a fun and interesting challenge because people also get more um inventive in how to blind more uh, effectively or to uh, lower the expectations so it's also an interesting development and research that there is more thought going into designing uh, proper blinding procedure, et cetera. Yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating time to be alive. The promise of psychedelics, the idea that they can create real change in a short amount of time is both incredibly 
exciting, but also dangerous on some levels, right? Is that is that fair to classify it as dangerous on some levels? Do you think? Uh, in what like aspect do you think it's okay. dangerous? Yeah. So, is it dangerous that people can have a a an experience that changes their life? Like on some level, is it is it is it too does it make people too vulnerable does it put people in a state that allows them to you know do something crazy does it make them so suggestible that you can not only help them confront the problems in their life but implant problems in their life you know i think about that when i think about integration i worry that maybe the person doing the integration if they're not trained accurately is doing more harm than good at some point in time like maybe they're putting the wrong wires in the wrong places that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And I, I do share that concern, a little bit, especially, <laughs> especially because um, I think a lot of people hear all the positive aspects about psychedelics. And yeah. um, for example, there was a Netflix documentary and it was so only positive. And I, I remember watching that and I was like, oh God, this is a bit too one-sided. And, and I can imagine, I even had some people approaching me and when I told them I do research in psychedelics and they said oh I've seen this Netflix documentary I really want to try that as well and I tried to say well just don't don't just try it don't do it you have to know what you're doing before you actually get into it and these aspects of integration set and setting preparation um, if you are knowledgeable about these aspects then I don't really see of course there's a risk still but at least you know what you're se- getting yourself into um and you can know that it makes you su- in a suggestible state and, and that it's important to surround yourself in a comfortable environment and with comfortable people who, who look after you um so i i don't know i i think if people are well informed uh and they're critical and don't just do it and try it but um yeah, really look into it for themselves. What what do you want to get out of it? How do you want to get that out of it? And what do you expect from it? Do you think it's a magic fix and then it's done? Or do you actually want to integrate it and work with it? Um, I think these aspects should should be uh, more clear to people, or at least it's, it's I think, their own responsibility to um, learn more about that. Uh, but I think we as, as researchers should uh, communicate that properly. Um, we, I think that happens in um, uh, articles, but maybe in, in podcasts or in like um, news articles, this should be maybe more uh, important. Like science communication is a completely like it is an aspect of our work, uh, but it's a difficult thing to communicate things in a clear, understandable way for for non-scientists i guess yeah it's well said it's i think this brings up a very fascinating point where you go to school where you're at and and the research you're doing puts you in such a unique position to help people understand the relationship with psychedelics because where you're at there's like you could it's somewhat legal there right like in the school you're at, you're actually doing real work with real people like that's that's different than in a lot of places <clears throat> excuse me maybe you could speak to that like you're in a very unique position and have a really different relationship than most people uh you mean to do research in this or well in the netherlands too right like i don't know the laws there but 
I went there. I don't. I went there. God, I'm gonna date myself here. I went. I went there a long time ago, and I used to go to the coffee shops, and they there, there was somewhat of a legal a legalized process there. Mm-hmm. Only only recently in in the United States, in a few states, has it become somewhat legal. It's been underground there before, and it seems to me that you have insight into being living in a place where there are, you know, so, some ways to consume it. You're also researching it and you're also traveling around talking to other people about it. So you have like this trifecta way of it, of a relationship with it. I mean, it, it. That seems more than most people to me. Maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, um, yeah it's like a, a gray area. Uh, I think it's, I don't know why it is, but I think in the, in the Dutch law, it's written that psilocybin is not um, allowed. So it's illegal. Um, and, and there is a, a list of psilocybin mushrooms on this list as well, but psilocybin truffles or mm-hmm. like that is not on that list. And that is why it's kind of a gray area um, yeah. that you can get it. But it doesn't really facilitate research here in any way because we cannot just go to the coffee shop and or like to, to the smart shop and get truffles there and use that in our experiments. So, it, it, so in that aspect, it doesn't help. Um, I do think being like growing up here in the Netherlands and knowing that weed was available and also, for example, truffles were available. I think um, personal experience, I don't think, or I do think it's good for then for, for young people to have that available to them because then it doesn't really get too exciting. And uh, if it is legal, then you are uh, illegal. You, you want to try it and you want to experiment with it. But I think having it available is, at least I, I experienced it as a positive thing. Um, and what was the other, the third aspect? I think the third aspect is is finding a way. Let, let me let me say it this way: the work you're doing with microdosing in a, in ADHD, it it seems to me people often find themselves working with things that have affected them in the past or they know people. Do you are do you have ADHD or do you know people in your family that have it or like why did you choose that particular route? I mean it was a coincidence more. Uh, I do don't yeah, I don't have ADHD. I I, I think I'm far from it. Uh, I think I'm very I yeah, I have a very organized mind and I like to work in an organized way. Right. <laughs> but I I would actually want to know what it is like to have ADHD just to get some more yeah, insight mm-hmm. into what it actually is. I, I read a lot about it. My, my nephew has ADHD and he's quite young. So I see something like from him and how he behaves, but uh, ADHD in adults is again then different. It has a different profile, of course, than, than in, in children. Um, so I'm also wondering how that is as an adult uh, to have ADHD, but it's how I, came to this topic, it was more a coincidence. So my supervisor, Kim Kuipers, she reached out to me and there was a, a company who wanted to do a, a controlled study with ADHD and microdosing and they reached out to her. So there was like this project available and she needed a PhD to work on it. And we've been in touch quite for a long time and I wanted to get back into research and kept e- emailing her like, is there something available? And it's, it's very difficult to find a PhD position um, I wanted to have specifically something in like the lab where I'm currently working. And then she mentioned, so uh, I have something uh, and it's uh, yeah, microdosing and a clinical study. And then that is how we got into this uh, 
topic, but I, I um, yeah, I, I enjoy it because it's, it's nice to have like a really a clinical aspect to it. You want, you can actually help people with the research you're doing. And I, yeah, a lot of people reach out and they ask questions about it and they want advice on it, but like, yeah, we should be careful uh, with that. We, we cannot advise anyone because there's not much known about microdosing with ADHD yet, but there's a lot of interest. So that's good. What is there any particular findings that you have found that we can we can talk about? It seems to me so fascinating because for someone like myself who who is a huge fan of psychedelics and probably has a problem with ADHD, you know. I was about to ask. <laughs> I I've, I'm self-diagnosed ADHD. I've talked to many counselors, but I I come from. I'm going to tell you something, not to impress you, but to impress upon you. I come from a family with a lot of mental illness. And so for me, psychedelics has been an incredible way for me to take a way of thinking that is super scattered and is all over the place and make sense of it. It's been a way for me to grab this thing here and put it over here and grab this and put it over here. And it's it's been very helpful to me. And so when I hear people talking about these particular studies, I want to read the findings. I want to know what they have to say because it seems to me psychedelics help make sense of the scattered brain. And that's the, that's such a horrible way to put it. It's not a scattered brain. It's just a different way that you see and make sense of the world. So what are some of the findings that maybe you – I don't know if you can talk about them. I, mean, I don't want to put you in a position where you can't. But you know, what are some of the findings or, or some things on the forefront that you're researching? Yeah, so we, we did um, one naturalistic study with ADHD, uh, and there we looked into mainly three aspects. So if you look at ADHD, you, you think of inattention and hyperactivity and impulsivity, but there are more problems than just those core symptoms. There are also emotional problems, like difficulties with emotion regulation. That is often leads to a lot of functional impairments in, in adults with ADHD. Also children, but I'm, I'm mainly focusing on, on adults then. Um, uh, so emotion regulation, sometimes empathy, uh, or that that interaction between them. If you you know you cannot regulate your own emotions, it's difficult to understand uh, someone else's emotions as well, or to uh, interact with them. Um, but also cognition. So you have of course uh, attention, but uh, inhibition, um, motivation. So where you prefer. A, a small immediate reward over a larger delayed rewards. That's mm. also very typical ADHD. Uh, and also time perception. So temporal processing is also something um, that is impaired in ADHD. But this is also not really known. Like right. people just think of inattention, hyperactivity, but there's more to it. And uh, so in this naturalistic study, we try to measure all these different aspects. So we uh, measured emotion regulation, the core ADHD symptoms, but also um, time perception performance. And you can measure this with a certain task where you uh, hear a certain uh, tone of, an, of a pitch for a certain duration. And then um, again, a tone starts and it's up to the participant to decide, okay, this second tone is just as long now as the first tone and you press the space bar. So you are presented with a tone and you have to reproduce this uh, interval of that first tone. And um, in ADHD, uh, you can see that mostly those time intervals are uh, underestimated. So it's more like their internal clock goes faster than an actual interval is. Is that, mm. it, that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Totally. Okay. 
Okay, and um, what we've seen in a controlled um, microdosing study with uh, LSD, in healthy volunteers, we saw that um, that particular task was done uh, by, by uh, individuals who had taken uh, low dose of LSD, and it was shown that those intervals were over-reproduced. So let's say it was a two-second time interval, and people had to reproduce this interval, and they overestimated it now. Mm. We thought, okay, this is interesting because in healthy volunteers, there's an overreproduction in uh, with microdosing, and ADHD normally has an underestimation, underreproduction of time intervals. So we thought, okay, let's measure this aspect in people with ADHD who are microdosing, and we can see if this underestimation will get more normal after microdosing, because like this underreproduction will then be overreproduced turning more into normal performance. So that is what we did with an online task in that study. Um, but we didn't find any improvement. Mm. But this is, it, this is again, it's a naturalistic study and um, people uh, had to fill in this questionnaire and this task was at the end. And it was quite an annoying task. We tried to limit the task duration to three minutes maximum, but still you're listening to quite annoying tones for three minutes. And I can imagine that some people were just, let's get, <laughs> get it over with. But still, um, I did like this is something we also then implemented in the controlled study. Um, we have not analyzed this yet because the study is still ongoing, mm -hmm. but I'm very curious to see if there's something there and that is actually happening in, in ADHD and if uh, LSD microdosing might affect temporal processing in ADHD. Because it's, it's related to many things in your daily life, right? How you right. deal with time. Um, and I think that is one of the yeah, most interesting things that we are looking at is not just inattention or hyperactivity, but we look more broadly in different domains. So also emotion regulation and, and cognitive performance. And um, one other thing, so for the emotion regulation, we also found improvements. So this is not um, published yet because we're still trying to find the control group to compare these um, uh, effects to, but um, yeah, it's interesting also to, yeah. to test this further in, in um, a controlled study. And again, this is then uh, like the benefit of a naturalistic study. You can get more information and you can develop further questions for experimental studies, right? So you can you see something in, in real life happening and then you want to isolate this specific effect and test it in the lab if it is actually happening also in the lab. Man, it's so awesome to me. I, on some level, I, I'm stuck on the idea of time and hyperactivity. Like what, you know, you, you don't think about that, but maybe someone who's hyperactive just, just, just understands time differently or they react in a different time. Like that makes so much more sense and it makes it so much more palatable. To think yeah. this person isn't hyperactive they're just experiencing time in a different way and what the hell is time anyway you know what i yeah. mean on some level yeah. how do you design like how, what goes into the design of these studies like how do you come up with ways to measure and ways to think about designing a study like this well maybe some first some background okay, about yeah. also this what is driven by this study. so there is a, a there are certain models or theories okay um, um like has been have been suggested for ADHD, and one of them is like a triple pathway model, suggesting that certain types of ADHD symptoms they occur um, 
through three different types of pathways. Uh, and this is time perception. The other one is motivation. And the other one is problems with executive functioning. So inhibition, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, mainly inhibition. So let's say you have a, um, you have a symptom that um, you make uh, mistakes in doing your homework or finishing certain tasks, right? And then there's there you can find different explanations for this behavior. So one of them is in the time perception that you feel like there's not enough time to finish it. And that is why you make careless mistakes. Another one is uh, with motivation that you just don't want to do it. You don't want to do it properly because there's no immediate reward in doing it properly or that you just have difficulties with understanding the task or the homework that you're doing. So this is like, yeah, this, this theory is trying to find explanation of these different types of ADHD symptoms. So I, and that is what is also difficult about this disorder is that it's so different for different kinds of people. Yeah. Um, and then get back to your question on how you design this. Um, by a lot of reading, I guess, a lot of <laughs> reading of the literature, um, collaborating, because my two supervisors, I have the best of, best of both worlds. So Kim Karpus is an expert in, in psychedelic research and microdosing, and Petra Hurx, she's an expert in ADHD. So I have the, yeah, yeah. she knows a lot about like uh, how to do tasks with ADHD, and um, we try to combine all this knowledge and, and yeah implemented in my PhD project. What about speech patterns? I bet you can measure effects in people's speech patterns because it seems to me that people that don't think linear have a very difficult time of speaking really calm and linear in a straight form without jumping around a little bit. You know what I mean? I, I, I bet you can measure that in some aspect, whether it's a a four minute conversation or a 30 minute, a 30 second conversation. You could see people stop and think about things or pause or, you know, use different words or filler words that, that might, what, what, what is the relationship? Is there a way to, I don't, is there a way to use language to measure certain things like that? Yeah. I, there are some studies, um, like, separate from ADHD, uh, but there, there are some psychedelic studies also with microdosing yeah. look into, they record an interview and they look at their uh, speech. So the, the type of positive or negative words they use or different aspects of speech they, they look into and they analyze. Um, but uh, yeah, that's also an interesting suggestion to do with ADHD to see if there is an effect there and how they speak. So because it says a lot about how they think, right? So yes. Good, good suggestion. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll bring it up in the brainstorm. Yeah. Well, I think both of us know that there's something that happens in the world of linguistics that is tied to psychedelics. My, I feel as if my vocabulary and my understanding of modeling reality has been greatly increased by my use of psychedelics. And I, it's not just me, the people I speak to, and maybe this speaks to the idea of the ineffable. So many people on a high dose LSD or mushroom trip talk about, I had this experience, but I just can't explain it. Well, the fact that you're trying to explain it is causing you to use metaphors, to bring up the past, to create this new information. And that there's something about that relationship between the ineffable speech patterns and modeling reality. And I think psychedelics is something that really brings those things together. Have you noticed that as well? 
Yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's interesting that we do want to capture what it is, right? And how to right. put it into words. But yeah, I think time and time people fail in, in doing so, but still we want to create something to, yeah, make it more um, touchable and not yeah. less abstract. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but I don't think we will ever get there in really understanding or like putting it into words, I guess. That's also the nice thing about it. It's a mystery about it, right? <laughs> it is. I have an interesting theory I want to run by you. I, I was playing with this idea that I've been reading a lot of Marshall McLuhan lately, and he's got this great book called The Gutenberg Galaxy, where he talks about typography and the printing press and how when the printing press came out, it fundamentally changed the human ability to model reality. It gave us these crazy concepts like exact repeatability, which weren't that, that didn't happen before. It was all storytelling and passed down in a certain way. But as you read that book, you learn that typography changed the way humankind's sense ratios worked. It gave us typography. It gave us exact repeatability. It gave us this new way to model reality. It changed our sense ratios in a way. It seems to me that that might be happening again when we look at things like social media, when we look at the way we can use um, all of these different AI apps for images and we can start putting together images. We can put together images like we put together words. Is that, you know what I mean by that? Like A is a letter and a word is a letter. A is a block of a word. A word is a block of a sentence. A sentence is a block of a paragraph. A paragraph is a block of a story. A story is a, is a block of a book. The same thing with images. You put one image together you, and you string it together in a stencil with other images. It seems like those two things are melding, especially with AI. We're getting images and words together and we're beginning to speak in a more robust way that allows us to thoroughly understand meaning in conversations and it seems like that's been lacking for a long time what do you think about changing sense ratios i i i know i know indeed about such an uh, ai program or software that you put something into words and it creates something yeah. based on your words it's really yeah. interesting i see it coming by on, on twitter quite a lot that people make a statement and they put this this image or this visual with it and it's like oh wow that's very suited and it matches and they're like existing ones out there i guess but maybe also something interesting that maybe researchers are doing is that they are collecting brain activity while people are seeing stuff right and then right. they use that those brain signals later to predict um no 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 wait so people are seeing something and they're measuring brain activity and then eventually they use those signals to predict what people are seeing so that right. would be I don't know. That's also something interesting. Uh, maybe that will happen in the future. Also, yeah, following from this type of research, I guess, because before maybe that wasn't as of interest, but now people are just interested in pe other people's experiences and what they are seeing and experiencing. So, who knows? I don't. I don't know if anyone's actually doing it right now, but I've heard some brainstorms about it that this is something cool to really achieve. I've seen some I've seen some people talking about neurofeedback when they're on high high I was talking to someone who was in I forgot exactly where they were but they had a they were doing neurofeedback in conjunction with psychedelic therapy and they were getting some really good results they were able to find 
stress points and trauma points. Have you been seeing some of this neurofeedback in conjunction with psychedelic therapy? No, but it's it's interesting, uh, especially also um, neurofeedback is is being used as a as a type of treatment for ADHD, for example, but also mm. for Parkinson's. And I was actually thinking of how how interesting would it be that you could combine that with with psychedelics? Because maybe because neurofeedback is more like learning without psychedelics, right? As a yeah. treatment, is more about learning certain um states of your brain so you can regulate it better so in, in terms of adhd you, you can see something on the screen and you should adapt your brain activity to a certain level and that that is a certain way of learning yeah. what if you could give this person like a low dose of, of yeah, a microdose and and maybe this learning would be facilitated or not i don't know but maybe it works in synergy um but you know that this is not happening anywhere, as far as I know. But it is uh, maybe something interesting for the future. Yeah, that sounds. I, I can see the trial already on a on a low dose or even a medium dose. If you could see the brain scans, or if you could see the way you your brain looked when you were in a traumatic situation, and you could tie that to how you felt. Now you have these two different stimuluses coming in. I can see it. I know how I felt. Now I can change it. Like that sounds yeah. like, that sounds like some real paradigm shifting therapy right there. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. I, so I, I don't know. I, I thought, yeah, I hope it will happen at some point. Um, Cause yeah, I know that I'm, I'm looking into ADHD and you have these existing treatments like, uh, ADHD medication and uh, psychological therapy, of course, but you can see also that a lot of people look for alternative ways to treat with their symptoms, and one of which is neurofeedback. Um, and, I'm, and I don't think there are many uh, research or studies published on it, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking into this right now to see if it is effective for some people or not. And if it is effective, then it would be really cool to have a study uh, maybe with in addition of a microdose. But we'll see. Uh, also something that Alexandra mentioned on Sunday is that research is expensive and it's difficult yes. to get funding and you have fun and cool uh, ideas, but really to put it into practice uh, is difficult. It's very competitive. And uh, it's a, yeah, it's not really a fun aspect of research, I would say. Yeah, there's always that. There's that part of it. <laughs> Sorry to be negative right now. <laughs> Not at all. It's. I think it's. I think it's necessary. It's important to understand that yeah. there's a lot of great ideas out there, and there's a lot of great people that have great ideas that are trying to do great things. But there's not enough money to go around to help figure those things out in a lot of ways, and that's that's been a problem in science for quite a long time. And that, and maybe that's what's led. A lot of people say that that's what's led to the, the current medical model of kind of, you know, make using using certain pharmaceuticals as a Band-Aid instead of a cure. You know what I mean by that? Like this pill will help you get up and go to work every day, but you're definitely not going to confront the reason why you feel like shit all the time. But you can feel good enough to get up and go to work. You feel good enough. To, you can wake up, and make yourself breakfast and be presentable and be productive that's about it you know yeah. it's it's Not interesting to think dreams. about yeah <laughs> yeah it's also interesting indeed that if people are unhappy then yeah there's been this whole 
period of time where people indeed get then treatments to to get more happy but there's a reason why you're not happy there's something going on yeah yeah and it's yeah i think it's it's changing now with psychedelics especially high doses that you go yeah. more to the root of the problem uh it's maybe different from microdosing i don't know yet what what's how if microdosing work and how it how it works of course we we're still investigating it but there is definitely a different mechanism compared to high dose um high doses of psychedelics but uh, yeah indeed it's um yeah it did the more the problem the root of the problem is more uh, attacked i guess you know what as we're, as we're talking about this and we think about mechanism of action when i think about ssris i think about the end result being a condition where you feel good enough to get through your day and when I think about psychedelics mechanism of action, I think of confronting a problem. I'm wondering, do you know of any studies that like, those seem like two opposite strategies or two opposite things happening in the brain. Maybe one is a flood of serotonin that allows you to get through your day, but there's another thing happening where you confront something. You know, psychedelics tend to give people this third person view where they can see a difficult situation without any blame, without any of the emotion that, keeps them from wanting to see it like that uh, maybe that's why we need to understand the mechanism of action we need to understand like what is that yeah yeah and it, i mean there are some, some theories about it right there's i think there's a paper called um the, the tale of two receptors or something and it's uh it's by dr robin card harrison and david nutt and they they yeah they look more into this different type of effect with antidepressants and with psychedelics and indeed it's more like you you're dampening the system with, mm. with ssris and you're more attacking the root of the yeah with, with psychedelics um so yeah it's 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 interesting and i guess also with ssris for example you you need a long period of time right before there is a positive effect so there is like some slow structural changes that are happening in your brain uh, whereas with psychedelics, there's immediate relief for some people. So it, it is a completely di different mechanism. And indeed, that's why we want to know what's going on, right? Um, but again, it's different than from, from microdosing, where you yeah. don't really know if there is something, if the, the root of the like the problem is, is being attacked. Or it's, it looks more also like a, a slow slower process maybe because people do it for a period of time right um so that yeah a different completely different me mechanism but very interesting i would say also to me um and i guess with with these high doses it's it's very obvious that it's not just a, a placebo effect and that is also then again more difficult with microdosing and yeah in in with the high dose studies, it's more interesting to know and important to know, okay, what is this mechanism? Why does it happen the way it does? And with microdosing, it's also you want to know what the mechanism is, but still we need to find out if it's not just then placebo. So there is a bit more. And I, I guess that's quite quite uh, difficult to investigate. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, I'm wondering, is there a correlation? Like, can you take... Like, look, if you were to look at the structural changes in large dose LSD trips, would those correlate to microdosing brain changes just only on a smaller level? 
I don't know. Um, I know like there, there are some uh, studies looking into, um, they look at the, the, the changes in, in the cell uh, ah. after high dose of psychedelics, right? But I don't think this has happened yet for with microdoses where they, where they uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, we just know like based on like st some studies that have been done in our lab, that uh, people do show an increase in BDNF after uh, low dose of, of LSD. But uh, again, if, if you can find high, uh, an elevated level of BDNF, what does it say about your, your brain, right? Is there some structural change? You don't really know. Um, but it would be actually interesting to see such a study where they, what they've done with high dose psychedelics in, like a, a, in a cell. What, what about low repeated doses? Do you see also structural changes? I don't know. But, um, yeah. 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 I, I, I know that you as a researcher, you can't speculate on that kind of stuff, but I can. And I think yeah. that, <laughs> I think that definitely happens, you know, as someone who has experimented with microdosing, I've been experimenting quite a bit lately with like Ethlad, which is a derivative of LSD. And I was taking like 20, Sorry. it's called uh, Ethlad, E-T-H slash L-A-D. It's, huh. it's, yeah, it's, I like to think of it as LSD's more introspective cousin. <laughs> you know, it just seems to me to have a little bit more of an introspective turn on it, which is, it's fascinating to me. Maybe, yeah, I like the introspection on it better. But the experiment that I was doing on myself was I was taking for some time, like 25 mics, like every day. And it seemed, at some point in time, there's clearly a tolerance. But it almost becomes like coffee. Like you do get a boost, even though there's tolerance. Like you can still feel it. But then I backed off and I moved it to like every three days. And you could definitely feel the effects vastly superior than if you take it every day. That being said, the cognitive effects of it, there's a, there's a an, un, an incredible clarity, I think, that comes with it. Now, I know that 25 is probably not a microdose because you definitely feel it. But I, I can imagine that it's a sliding scale. If you take a huge dose, you're going to definitely be incoherent, but the structural changes are probably very similar to the museum dose, which are probably very similar to the micro dose, just on a sliding scale. I, I, I have nothing to back that up, but I'm just, this is my pure speculation there, you know? So what, what, let me so share that. What, what do you experience then in this clarity when you, you, what do you, what are the benefits that you experience? Cause I'm also interested to hear yeah. from people who microdose what they experience. For me, it's seeing things in a way that makes sense. It's almost as if things are revealed to me. And I'll give you an example of the same way that I can go in my garden and I can see the flower here, here's something that I think is clarity to me that I've noticed. And it's three things together. One is that if I go in my garden and I can see this vine climb up a tree and I see the fruit or the flower expose itself at 247 on August 3rd, it, you know, in the, like there's a perfect rhythm there. And then I'll be reading a book and it'll start talking about how in your life, you will see a certain sign that, that will okay i'm not making this very clear am i so <laughs> it seems to me that i can see patterns in a way i can see patterns in the garden the same way i see patterns in the book the same way i see patterns in my life and it makes those pat whether it's something i'm making up or whether it's something i'm actually seeing 
I believe it helps me see patterns more clearly. And that helps me deal with my life a little bit better. It kind of helps me understand, well, there's an order here. If I can see the plant blooming there, and I just read this in the book that reminds me of that, and all of a sudden my life is more orderly, maybe there's a line there. All these things are coming together. That's a pattern. I'm bigger than this, I'm bigger than this one thing. So I think that that is the clarity that I, I kind of see. I wish it could be more clear. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it doesn't need to be more clear. It's how Good. you experience it, right? Right. That, yeah, it's just interesting to hear also the words that you use to explain what you're experiencing no it's 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 interesting i also know that um i remember being at imperial and we were working on a microdosing study that was in 2018 or something that there was amanda fielding who who uh, wanted to really look into pattern recognition and right. she she said it back then already that she saw some value in measuring pattern recognition after microdosing so it's funny that you mentioned that <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's okay. Well, if we just extrapolate out what are, like, think about all the geometrical images you see, might that be a language that we're interpreting? Might the geometric images that we see help us understand different perspectives in life? You know, and it, it, it's, it brings it all the way back to the, you know, it brings it back to patterns. It brings it back to mathematics. It brings it back to language in its purest form and its patterns. The patterns you see in your garden can speak. The, the patterns that you have in your, that, that you use in your yard are probably the same patterns you have in your life. They're probably the same patterns you have in your speech. They're probably the same patterns you have in your behavior. And all you need to do is recognize it outside to recognize it inside. And you can make changes. You can make changes by watching the way your plants grow. If you understand the pattern and you can go, hey, wait a minute. I am also being eaten alive by little bugs, you know, like the same way the bugs eat your plants. So too, the little things that don't matter, get inside your head and bother you, but you can get rid of them. You know, there's, there's patterns are everywhere. I think. Yeah. Interesting. And <laughs> you, yeah, in, in the high dose, in the high dose, you just see like you see patterns. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah. No, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I've never, never thought of it that way. And, and also what you mentioned before about, uh, 25 micro, microgram not being a microdose. I think this is also something interesting that I want to discuss uh, because we have there is this definition of what a microdose is and that it's yeah. should be 20, 10 to 20 percent of a full dose and it should not um, have any perceptual effects. And but I think the more and more research we do and also based on these naturalistic studies, it's actually it seems that people do not really adhere to this definition. So yeah. it, it's, I don't, I don't know um, why this was formulated maybe already so early on, I guess, because people who microdose take quite a big, bigger dose than just a micro. They, I think they, they do do it because they also want to feel something. And it, of course, it, it, if, it, if you feel something, doesn't mean that it interferes with your daily activities. So I think, um, yeah. With research, I think it's also would be easier and nicer if we would just let go a little bit of this strict definition and we don't really know what a microdose then is. If, can we also just call it low or small doses? I would be, yeah. And, and also maybe what we also seen is that so many different people respond so differently to a one particular dose. So what a microdose is for someone 
that you don't feel anything is quite different than another person who is quite sensitive. So yeah, it's it's very individual, and um, I think we're uh, making make, like researchers making it themselves quite difficult to like limit ourselves to this predefined definition quite early on. Um, it's also something we, we there's, for example, uh, with, with publishing research, we show that people are taking higher doses than just a microdose, right? Uh, 20 to 25 micrograms of LSD. Um, but then you can get quite a lot of criticism, like, hey, this is not a microdose. But like, that is what people take. It is what happens in real life. So why don't we just uh, investigate that? And if there is something that people do feel, is that a bad thing if it doesn't interrupt uh, their normal functioning? This is something I, yeah, I don't know. There's like a bit of a debate or interesting things going on, I, I would say. But um, in general, I think there's way too little research yet on microdosing to say anything about if this is a proper microdose or not, or uh, if there is a placebo effect or not, I think there's like hardly, yeah, we don't know anything yet. So, and I, yeah, I, yeah, I I'm a bit, <laughs> it's interesting because there seems to be such a debate all the time, specifically about microdosing. No, it doesn't work. Yes, it works. We don't know yet. And like, we just, yeah, it's, it's sometimes very frustrating to me. And I, sometimes at conferences or something, you can feel this, energy in, in like the audience, for example, that some people do believe in microdosing or they don't. And as a researcher, it's kind of annoying because I I don't really I don't really care if it works or not. I, I just want to investigate if it works or not. And we, at this moment, we don't know yet if it works or not. We have some evidence what, what happens in, in healthy volunteers in a lab and we know we have some studies who look more in naturalistic settings where there's no control group. Um, but so far, there's not one published controlled study yet in a clinical population. And in, in a clinical population, you expect the best, like the most effects, right? Where there's more room for improvement. So, yeah, I hope that there will be more and more studies looking into clinical populations. Like the, the ADHD one is, is one of them, but also I know in Australia, there is a big trial coming up with uh, depression and microdosing. So that will also be very interesting. Um, yeah, and I hope there will be more more coming up. So It's, it's fascinating to hear. I mean, uh, it's interesting to hear the frustration. And it, it kind of <laughs> reminds me of the debate between the particle and the wave, right? Like, it's a particle, it's a wave, it's a particle, it's a wave, you know? I don't, like, I don't know what this is. So, like, when you look at a like the Schrodinger's cat, right? Like they're like, is it a particle or is it a wave? Oh, here's a, here's a, here's a, okay. here's a pretty good joke. I think it's a pretty good joke, but it's something along the lines of a, a gentleman goes into a physics building and he says, gentlemen, you are among the most intelligent people on the planet. Like what is going on with, with light? You know, is it, you know, is it, is it a particle? Is it a wave? What's going on? And one guy's like, it's a particle. And the other guy's like, no, it's a wave. And then the third guy says, it just depends on who we're lying to. Like, nobody knows. Like, it doesn't, nobody knows. You know what I mean? On some level, are we, when I think about microdosing, when I think about psychedelics, it's so slippery. 
it, it's both and like, yeah, it totally works. It doesn't work at all for them. You know, it's both of them. And I, I don't, I'm so fascinated for the research because I want to find ways to figure it out too. I want to know what's happening in there. But it seems like it's both and because both camps have really dug in their heels and are like, this definitely doesn't. You can't prove it. It's a placebo. It doesn't. It's, it's just it's just nonsense. And other people are like, I saw my mom crying, man. I saw my mom crying for the first time. It works. You know, it's it's I can feel your frustration and it's it's exciting because I want to get to the bottom of it as well. Cool. Yeah, I <laughs> completely agree. But I think it, like the research research will go on and will go further. But yeah, I don't like that there is such a heavy debate uh, all the time, and it's very also discouraging. I would say like mm -hmm. we as researchers should work together and figuring it out, and not like making like arguments if something works or not. I think, yeah, yeah. We are coming up on on our time, and if you have more, if you, you I think you have to go. But if yeah, you have more time, <laughs> damn it! I mean, I, don't I need want you to leave. I need, and it's uh, yeah. you gotta go. It's we have to go. I have to do. Um, we also have a uh, teaching at the university. Fine. I have a uh, teaching at some point uh, in an hour, and I need to go there. Yes, well, but I, I really enjoyed this. This was a. Uh, Nice yeah, me too. Maybe maybe we can come back for a panel and we can have more people on and we can have more voices and try to figure out some more things. I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. And I want to point everybody listening to this or watching to this to the show notes where they can check out the work you've been doing, the work you're going to work on and the stuff that you've presented. But before I let you go, where can people find you and do you have anything else coming up? Um, uh, on LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, I try to be active on Twitter or I'm also, we have, our department has a social media platform or a okay. Twitter page and we're quite active there. We also have Instagram. Um, of course, yeah, you met, you met Zeus. Uh, he is on our social media What's up, team. Zeus? <laughs> so we are trying to reach out to people, um, and it's working quite well, I think. So yeah, you, you can reach me there. Uh, I'm happy to discuss things. Um, what is coming up? Um, I do have some uh, online questionnaire studies still ongoing, naturalistic ones that are not necessarily focused on psychedelics, but uh, more on ADHD to get a big, better picture of ADHD and available treatments and alternative treatments. Um, so if any of your listeners wants to yeah. participate, uh, they can uh, reach out to me. Definitely it would be very helpful. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's kind of it. Okay, well, fair enough. Hang on one second briefly. I'm going to talk to you briefly afterwards, but I'm going to hang up with our people right now. Ladies and gentlemen, an incredible individual doing incredible work. And for those who are paying attention, we're really living in transformative times. Times are changing in ways that are profound. We're going to look back on these days like we look back on the late 50s and 60s. I think we're doing great work here. You're doing great work. I'm stoked for all the team over there. And that's all we got for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for hanging out. I hope you have a beautiful day. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. 
I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.